I'm Caleb Brown, host of the Cato Daily Podcast, and I'd like to take this small bit of time out of your listening to ask you to support the Cato Institute and the Cato Daily Podcast by becoming a podcast sponsor. Visit cato.org slash podcast sponsor and give a donation in any amount to support our work. If you donate $1,000 before the end of the year, I'll give you a shout out on the podcast. Visit cato.org slash podcast sponsor to get started. You can also designate a friend or loved one to receive the benefits of being a Cato sponsor. Thank you for supporting the Cato Institute and the values of individual liberty, limited government, free markets, and peace. This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Thursday, December 27th, 2018. I'm Caleb Brown. The Jones Act sets up a false promise for its supposed beneficiaries and underappreciated losses for average Americans. Brian Riley is director of the Free Trade Initiative at the National Taxpayers Union. We discussed his new essay about what the Trump administration can learn from the Jones Act earlier this month. You could have just as easily written this essay, I guess, about, oh, the last 25 plus administrations. Uh, But what do you believe uniquely the Trump administration can learn about the Jones Act? Well, I think a lot of people rightly are concerned about the Jones Act in terms of the costs that it inflicts on the American economy, particularly if you're living in some place like Hawaii or, or Puerto Rico, where you rely on domestic shipping and wind up paying a lot more uh, as a result. If you live in Hawaii, you're not going to be getting your goods trucked in or or um, uh, delivered by rail car. So uh, that's, that's certainly something that continues to be a, a problem. But uh, when we have an administration in the United States that repeatedly has, has used national security arguments to suggest we need to restrict steel imports, we need to restrict aluminum imports, uh, maybe we need to re- restrict imports of cars and and car parts. I think the Jones Act should be um, illustrative because one of the arguments that supporters of the Jones Act repeatedly rely on is the suggestion that we need it for our, our national defense, that the Jones Act somehow allows us to have a strong maritime industry, a strong shipbuilding industry, when in, in fact, it's done the opposite. I can hear the president's voice in my head saying, so, paraphrasing one of his phrases related to steel, and that is, if you don't have shipbuilding capacity, you don't have a country. Right. And, um, you know, it's, uh, one of the interesting things to me is in, in trade policy, it's uh, tariffs and protectionist policies are tip- typically looked at as the government picking winners and losers. So maybe we'll pay more for steel to protect steelmakers, but steel using industries will um, will pay the price. Or uh, we're going to protect shipbuilding, as you just suggested, but ship using industries will pay the price. And one of the things that, that came up at the, the Cato Institute panel today, uh, the event on the Jones Act, several people pointed out that in many cases, protectionist tariffs and protectionist trade barriers actually make the U.S. protected industry weaker instead of stronger. And uh, I, I use a quote often from President Woodrow Wilson, who said, one of the counts of the indictment against the so-called protective tariff is that it, is, it has robbed Americans of their independence, resourcefulness, and self-reliance. Or uh, more recently, 
Adam Carolla said with, with respect to cars, uh, if it wasn't for competition, we'd all be driving gremlins. And and that's exactly right. The Jones Act hasn't done anything to promote shipbuilding in the in the US. It's it makes us pay more. Um we have fewer ships uh that can carry goods between US ports and you mentioned, I don't know how many administrations I've lost count since the Jones Act took effect, but we're coming up on 100 years. And I think the work the Cato Institute's doing is so important to try and make sure we don't have a, another 100 years of this destructive policy. So if you were to uh, count up the uh, concentrated benefits that are uh, can be attributed to the Jones Act, you have some uh, domestic shippers that probably also have ships that that do international shipping, but also uh, truckers or rail carriers that carry goods over land. Right. So it's, it's often argued that, well, truckers and the, and the rail industry must really like the Jones Act because it's by driving up the cost of delivering goods by ship within the U.S., that creates more opportunities for trucking and for for uh, delivering things by rail or even by air. Um, and, and there could be some truth to that. But I think these industries, in many cases, recognize that more commerce is a good thing and more transportation is a good thing. And so uh, shipping versus rail, they could be seen as uh, competitors in some cases, but that it, they could also be seen as industries that complement each other. So I think the real benefits um, don't so much accrue to truckers or, or the rail industry. Um, it's mainly to the, the U.S. shipbuilders who are protected. And it costs the U.S. Um, uh, shippers, the shipping companies that have to buy higher priced vehicles, the prices of U.S. priced vessels are three, four, five, or six times higher than if they could buy the, the lowest priced goods, um, ships built in other countries. But one of the issues is they've got those locked-in costs, and so suddenly, if we just just opened up to competition, uh, they might argue, "Well, this isn't fair. We already paid for these high-priced ships, uh, what, and 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 now you expect us to compete with everybody else who who isn't handicapped in the same way." I, I think that goes for a, a whole lot of government regulations, whether, whether it's. Uber coming in and the taxi drivers or taxi monopoly monopolists uh, being upset because they had this the the special authorization that they paid for to do business, or whether it's farmers who made certain decisions based on a s government subsidies, and so God forbid those subsidies ever went away. It's uh, these these policies from the government can tend to be self perpetuating, and uh, that that can certainly be true here in this case where. Uh, in theory, if you're shipping goods from, say, Los Angeles to Hawaii, you ought to love the chance to buy lower-priced ships. Um, problem is, you've already if you've already spent a lot of money on the high-priced U.S.-built ships, uh, you, you don't want things to change necessarily. And that's part of the reason that we've had the Jones Act for coming on 100 years. Well, let's walk through some of the mechanics of how uh, prices might be increased for Americans who are uh, would be consuming products from other countries. Um, I'm, I'm imagining a ship coming from China or Europe. Uh, that ship uh, makes a stop in Seattle or San Francisco to drop off goods. It then cannot pick up goods at that port and take it on to another 
coastal city. What is the real impact of uh, that kind of restriction on foreign flagged, foreign owned, foreign crewed ships? Well, there are, there are a number of impacts. First of all, there's a cost impact. Um, second of all, there is uh, an environmental impact. You have all those trucks waiting to unload the goods uh, at the port because uh, that ship that you just described can't drop off and unload and reload cargo and then go on down the coast. Um, so as a result, all that transportation gets taken by highways and that creates congestion and can create uh, in environmental uh, issues. Uh, and, and, and it just adds to costs. If you look at domestic transportation, and just to be clear, this is a restriction that doesn't apply to aircraft, uh, to air transportation. It doesn't apply to rail transportation. It doesn't apply if you want to ship something from um, St. Louis to Miami by uh, FedEx or UPS using a truck that you can you're free to do that and the ships and the I'm sorry the the trucks could be built anywhere in the world this is a policy that really uh, singles out one industry so if you look at for example uh petroleum and, and natural gas it's often cheaper to take gas that was uh, produced or refined in the Gulf of Mexico and to send it to another country than to send it to the east coast of the United States, because if we send it to another country, we can use the cheapest shipping available. If we send it to the east coast, we've got to use U.S. built vessels. Those are a lot more expensive. So we'll send our gas overseas and we'll import the gas or, or the petroleum from uh, maybe from England or from Canada or someplace else. So it just really screws up the way business might otherwise be done. And it's it's like a lot of things. I work at the National Taxpayers Union, and this is something that's that's a hidden tax. And that's part of the reason it's maintained uh, it's, that the Jones Act has been around for so long is those groups that benefit really understand that how much they benefit and their bottom line benefits from, from maintaining the Jones Act, where, whereas the Americans who pay more, uh, it's, it's, it's a hidden cost. They don't know that every time they fill up their gas tank, it's a few extra cents a gallon. They don't know, um, or if they do know that when they're feeding their hogs in North Carolina, they pay a little bit extra for the, for the grain coming from the Midwest. Uh, it, as, as a result, it's just an uneven playing field where the, the people who benefit uh, spend an inordinate amount of resources lobbying and making campaign donations to, uh, to really prevent any beneficial changes from taking effect. But I'm hopeful that, that the Cato Institute's work and, and those of others are, are going to turn things around, and it's certainly long overdue for a change. Are there benefits that uh, countries receive or costs that, are uh, that, of course, are ultimately absorbed by American consumers when shippers decide, well, I might as well not deliver this to the United States directly. I'll deliver it to a port in Canada or Mexico, knowing that the final destination of most of these goods is the United States? Well, in most cases, that kind of transshipment is is um, is limited. There, there are controls on it. So that, that the, the, the issue really is more likely to be, uh, you, we might have a, a good that, um, say, rock salt, for example, where if, if you're in the Northeast and there's a snowstorm and you could get your rock salt from 
uh, from Louisiana or from another part of the U.S., it's cheaper for you to import it from Chile or from South America instead. And so that rock salt travels a much longer distance, uh, but it's still cheaper to transport and to import the good than to transport the products domestically. So I think that's more of a significant issue. And this the same kind of problems apply to cruise lines, where if you want to cruise from point A to point B, if you want to take a cruise from New York to Miami or from Seattle to Los Angeles, you're out of luck because essentially our, our laws require uh, a stop in another country before you can go from point A to B within, to point, from point A to point B within the United States, unless you comply with all the requirements, including having a U.S. built vessel, which we don't even really build in the U.S. anymore. So it's, there are a number of unintended consequences to the Jones Act as there are to most restrictive federal government policies. Brian Riley is director of the Free Trade Initiative at the National Taxpayers Union. I've been asking you to support the Cato Institute by becoming a Cato podcast sponsor this month. Now it's time for some shout outs. Tony Costanzo, thank you for once again showing your support for Cato's work. Cato accepts no government money, so we truly appreciate your financial commitment. You can join Mr. Costanzo by supporting Cato. Visit cato.org slash podcast sponsor.